Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, July 23rd. 2015, <clears throat> and uh, I'm broadcasting from Broward County, Florida, after an exhausting week, but an interesting week. We'll talk about that. Tonight, we bring back our old friend, Standing and remind you that this is a jurisdictional question that can be raised at any time, even after trial and even during appeal, and then perhaps even afterwards. And we talk about the effects of rescission on foreclosure defense and rescission, which is offensive rather than defensive and puts the burden where it belongs on the pretender lenders. But first, I've had a lot of conversations this week with a lot of lawyers and borrowers and accountants and bankruptcy lawyers who are all starting to get the point and have arrived in their own way at the same conclusions that I have but needed to hear it from me. So I told them to tune in to the show, and I, by the way, special welcome to the bank representatives that are listening to this show. I know that there are many of them. Uh, First, let's remember what this is all about, because most judges, lawyers, and even borrowers who know they got screwed don't understand how they are the victims. They don't understand why the banks should lose. And frankly, most decent people have a sense of morality and their sense of morality tells them that if they actually beat the bank, they'll be getting away with something that's not right. And that's what the banks have gotten all the judges and lawyers and borrowers to believe. It's a lie. It's a living lie, to quote my blog. So let's go back over the basics for a moment and talk about what this whole mess is really about so that you understand what you're looking for. This is directed at all the attorneys that I invited to listen to this program across the country. 
One judge whose decision I reported uh, a few weeks ago realized the essential problem. Mm-hmm. And now several other judges uh, have done the same. For 10 years or more, everybody has been asking, what difference does it make who the lender is? If the borrower missed a payment, they should lose their home. That's been like an axiom, an absolute truth. And and it seems clear if you have a normal sense of morality, if the borrower missed the payment, they should lose their home. I, recognizing from my background on Wall Street, realized what was occurring. And then as I got further into it and had some inside sources, I realized that this wasn't a matter of excess. This was a matter of incest. And it was a matter of fraud. And almost everybody in the big institutions on Wall Street was involved to one extent or another, although many of them were deprived of the necessary information to understand the full scope of what they were involved with. Some did understand, and they quit. In fact, the lawyers who were tasked with drafting the documents for these so-called derivatives or mortgage-backed securities or credit default swaps, they quit. There were nine of them who thought that they were being asked to draft, in essence, a criminal conspiracy. And in fact, the operation of all of what happened here is very similar to what, Mm -hmm. or, or identical, to what we have seen in organized crime. I kept asking the counter question to, you know, the the normal question was, if the borrower missed the payment, why shouldn't they lose their home? I kept asking the other question. Maybe they should lose their home. This is what I thought at first. But to whom? People who had no financial stake in the deal, people who never loaned a penny, people who never spent a penny buying the loans, why should they get the house? Shouldn't it be the people that actually were the funding source for the origination and acquisition of the loans? And that led to corollaries like, shouldn't those people who actually advanced money have been the ones on the note and mortgage? And the answer is yes. They're the only ones that should have been on the note and mortgage. So, but this judge that I quoted a couple of weeks ago said it better. He said, what difference does it make if the borrower stopped making payments when the creditor is not complaining? If the creditor has no right to collect, they have no right to declare a default, and they certainly have no right to collect or enforce any instrument, whether they're named on it, endorsed, received an endorsement of it, or anything else. Fraud is fraud. The only exception could be an innocent third party who purchases the loan documents for value 
without knowledge of the borrower's defenses and in good faith, and that would be a holder in due course. And Mm -hmm. I make careful mention here that in not a single case that I have observed did anyone allege that they were a holder in due course. They all allege that they're either a holder or a possessor with rights to enforce. And judges who, frankly, may not understand well enough the workings of the Uniform Commercial Code with holders and possessors have ruled conveniently to get the case off their docket and ruled against the borrower. So the this judge asked the question, you know, why should the borrower make payments to somebody who has no right to collect it? And he and he made a decision and his decision has been reflected in many other courts where not only did the bank lose, but the lien and the note were invalidated because it was part of a fraudulent scheme. Not only was the mortgage and note invalidated, but every penny the borrower paid was ordered to be paid back to the borrower. That's called disgorgement. There's a lot of money in there for lawyers who want to take up these cases, and there is no bigger target than the handful of banks who are responsible for all of this. So why did these orders require Bank of America, Wells Fargo, et cetera, to pay back every cent they ever collected from the borrower? It's simple. They never had any right to collect it. And the note and mortgage were fraudulent documents, even though the borrower signed them. That's important because what it what these decisions mean is that an apparently facial document, facially valid document, might be sufficient for pleading in order to get past a motion to dismiss, but they are not sufficient for proof at trial. So you may ask why, and so here's a short summary of what really happened and why you should not want to pay a thief and why you should never be paying a thief and why you should stand up to the banks and proudly proclaim that you want to pay the creditor, the real creditor. It all starts with the derivatives you heard so much about over the years. The investment banks on Wall Street, the big ones, not the little ones, figured out a way to literally corner the market on money and hide the process from the court system. They organized trusts under common law in New York State and Delaware. They appointed big-name banks as trustees. They were appointing each other, actually. One lied and the other swore to it. So they appointed these big names, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, Wells Fargo, New York Mellon, 
U.S. Bank, etc., as trustees of the trust, and frequently uh, LaSalle Bank was involved in that. Frequently, they would then change the trustee, which is of dubious legality, but let's say it was had the power to do it and they had the trust issue mortgage bonds that was the first lie the issuance of mortgage bonds there were no mortgages behind the mortgage bonds so they were just bonds not mortgage bonds then they sold the mortgage bonds as though the bonds were really backed by mortgages but they were not that was the second lie. The investors told the pro, were told the proceeds of the sale of the fake mortgage bonds were going into the trust, just like any other IPO. And that was the third lie. Those trusts never received a penny. The investment banks had no intention of handing over trillions of dollars to trusts that existed only on paper and which never operated a single day. The investment banks kept the money for themselves, and instead of putting the money in the trust, they used the investor money to originate and acquire loans for their own conduits and sham entities and what they called special purpose vehicles and bankruptcy remote vehicles. They told the investors they would use the same underwriting standards that the banks used for lending money to anyone, and that is the next lie. The investment banks intentionally created and wrote loans that in in all of history nobody would have done. No matter what standard one used in analyzing them. And that was the next lie because they quickly discovered that a really bad loan with a relatively high interest rate do the math, those of you who are gifted with this. They quickly discovered that a really bad loan with relatively high interest rate could be sold for as much as four times the principal amount loan if the buyer thought that the loans were AAA quality, insured, and guaranteed, which was three more lies, one to the investors, one to the insurers, and one to the government guarantee agencies. But it didn't stop there. They sold the paper from the loans multiple times, and they managed to get other institutions to indirectly buy the loans again under the guise of being credit default swaps when they were no such thing. It was all a game to see how many times they could sell the loan, how many times they could sell the same bond. And the whole while, they were using the money of the investors, pocketing the money into their own accounts, and then adding insult to injury, naming themselves as the owner of the fake mortgage bonds, which they sold multiple times. And finally, again, Federal Reserve, for 100 cents on the dollar, the total of which now I understand to be in excess of $4 trillion. That's with a T. 
Why is this important to you? Because the money that was used to fund your closing came out of a slush fund created by a gigantic fraudulent scheme that so far has worked for over 10 years. And we have all been making payments to the investment banks who claimed losses on bonds they didn't own. So they couldn't have lost anything. And on loans that were never sold to them or the trust, so they couldn't have lost money on the loans because the trust actually never had the money to pay for them. So all this time we have been paying the thieves who stole money from investors and stole the borrower's identities to sell all kinds of loans multiple times, up to 42 times in the case of Bear Stearns, which was one of the first banks fail early. Lehman was not far behind in the number of the dozens of times that it was selling, in essence, the same loans or the same bonds. And that's the crux of it. The money came from the investors, not the originators. So there is no money trail to back up any of the claims for collection, enforcement, for authority to even speak to a borrower. The money came from the investors, not the originator, not the table-funded lender, not the conduits through whom the money traveled. None of them had a right to to collect. None of them had a right to enforce the illegal instruments signed at closing. And no surprise, none of them had a right to process modifications or forbearance agreements or any other settlements concerning loans for which they had no authority to talk about or even contact the borrower. This week, with two back-to-back decisions in the Florida 2nd and Florida 4th DCA District Court of Appeals, standing has made its long-awaited comeback. The question is not whether the borrower stopped making payments, as the thousands of judges have put it. The The real question is whether the creditor got paid. Banks have successfully obscured the issue and obtained nearly 8 million foreclosures, displacing close to 20 million people. What difference does it make if the borrower stopped making, stopped paying the party who had no right to collect the money? If anything, the borrower, by stopping, was mitigating his own damages against the servicer and other parties who were wrongfully collecting and wrongfully foreclosing on the properties. All the money that has been paid to a servicer pretending to be the servicer is subject to disgorgement. I used that term before. If the servicer is claiming to be the authorized servicer, by virtue of a grant of power from the trustee, like Deutsche Bank, HSBC, U.S. Bank, etc., and that trustee is alleging that they are the trustee of a trust, 
that, in fact, has not been shown to be the owner or authorized representative of the owner of the debt, it's really pretty simple once you sweep bias aside. If the trust never got to own the loans, then the servicer claiming to service loans on behalf of the trust doesn't have any right to service anything. And since the investors contracted away their right to get involved in the lending process or even to inquire about it, they don't have any knowledge that your loan exists, that it's in uh, some kind of enforcement or collection procedure or foreclosure. And they certainly don't realize that the whole process is designed to put money not in the pocket of the investors, but in the pocket of services who have made advances to the investors, making them think that their bonds were paying off when, in fact, they were simply using the money of the investors from this slush fund to make it appear that they were getting their regularly scheduled payments, which means that from the creditor's standpoint, there is no default, even if the note and mortgage were valid. They got paid exactly what they expected to get paid. So we'll take a few minutes here and say, and ask the question, what do you do after you sent the notice of rescission? And that extends to rescissions that were sent years ago. There are many nuances caused by state and federal law and procedure. For example, I spoke to someone recently in um, in Florida who had a loan. They sent a notice of rescission within the three years, no question about it. And then they filed suit on the rescission and they won. And the note and mortgage were declared void, and money damages were awarded to them and paid. Somehow or other, they got convinced to execute a modification agreement, probably because of their internal sense of morality that they should pay something when they took a loan. It still had not occurred to them that they were, in fact, dealing with people who never made them the loan, nor who purchased it. And eventually, there was a consent judgment. And now, we're examining and analyzing the case because if the loan contract was void, which is exactly what the federal judge said in the Middle District of Florida, if the note and mortgage were void, then how did they modify it? Or did that suddenly turn into a new loan agreement? In which case, where are the dealer uh, disclosure requirements and the new right to rescind? There are a number of issues that come up even with the old ones. 
So right now, the thing to keep in mind is that although there are nuances, one thing cannot be denied. The rescission mm-hmm. is effective by operation of law when it is made. And nothing except another act that is effective by operation of law can change that. There's no letter. There is no argument in court that anyone can make that will change the fact that the rescission was effective on the day that it was mailed, which means that on that day, the note, mortgage, and loan contract became void. If the borrower was mistaken, wrong, or whatever, that still gives the election to the lender to accept it. And if they had actually made a real loan to the borrowers, then they might in fact say, okay, here's your canceled note. Here's, we filed the satisfaction of mortgage and here's the money you paid us. Now pay us the money that you owe us. And if the borrower is doing that by getting a new mortgage from a new lender, the new lender is going to insist that the old lender get paid. But here's the catch. They don't have anybody that can step forward as the actual lender. And in order to allege and prove standing, which means a right to be in court, you have to be able to say, I'm being hurt by this rescission because I'm not going to collect on this debt. They don't have anybody like that because they can't bring in the investors probably without going to jail. So before you get to the question of the three-year statute of limitations and equitable tolling and purchase money mortgages and all the other factual issues that have to be raised in a real pleading, in a real court, resulting in a real order from a real judge, they first have to establish that they have standing and they can't use the note and mortgage to do it. Because at the time they would make that allegation, the note and the mortgage are void and so was the loan contract. So they would have to come in and say, we are the parties who paid for this loan. Either we originated it and funded it, or we paid for it. And they can't use documents, and this is the cases that came out of the second and fourth DCAs. They can't use documents that beat around the bush and talk about the transaction. They have to say, we've got the proof of the transaction. We have the canceled checks. We have the uh, wire transfer receipts. And without that, they've got nothing. So when it comes down to it, the whole issue of rescission 
as well as foreclosure defense, all comes down to the same thing, which dozens of lawyers have realized for years, but have not gotten much traction until recently, which is it all comes down to standing. If they really did have the money and they really did have the proof of, of payment, then they would be more than happy to lay it on the table in front of the judge saying, what are we doing here? I represented banks. I represented a number of institutions in foreclosures. If anybody had come to me with that kind of defense, I would have put it to death instantly that, that my client actually had the goods. We'll resume next week. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.